Welcome to episode 14 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I am your moderator, Sheila Woodruff, and with me today are regular panelists, Lisa Cordles and Dr. Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, who successfully defended her dissertation between our last podcast and this one. Congratulations. Yay. Thank you. Congratulations, Victoria. Congratulations. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you both for being on the show today. Let's introduce ourselves before we get started. Victoria, would you start? Yes, I am, as Sheila said, recent Dr. Victoria Reynolds Farmer, and I promise that this is the only time on the show I will refer to myself as such, because that's kind of silly, but uh, hooray, I did just finish uh, defending my dissertation uh, on young adult novels that adapt Shakespeare for girls, and uh, I am an adjunct instructor of English and Sociology at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. I live in Minnetonka, Minnesota with my husband, Michael, and right now I'm basically just trying to figure out what the next step is for me. And I'm Lisa Cordles, and I live in Waconia, Minnesota, and I used to work at Crown College with Dr. Farmer, and um, again, congratulations. I have a master's degree in theological studies, emphasis Old Testament, uh, from Bethel Seminary in St. Paul. I started working on my doctorate for Old Testament uh, with the focus on um, the feminist perspective on the Old Testament. Uh, unfortunately, the place to get the doctorate appears dried up, but uh, so I'm also kind of in the process of figuring out what the next step is for me. To that end, I have just finished writing my first novel I'm in the process of revising it for publication. I'm Sheila Woodruff of Louisville, Kentucky. I live here with my husband and two kids. I taught middle school language arts, studied English literature at Florida State University, worked with a statewide federal after-school grant in Florida, and now I'm working with Educators Toolkit, a professional development resource for teachers nationwide. Before we get started on today's topic, we have a few listener emails to respond to. Victoria, would you start us off? Yes. Uh, the first email we have is from uh, Allison. And Allison says, uh, I've recently discovered your podcast and I'm hooked. I grew into my feminism and eventually a confident embrace of the term, though I'm still working on this part. That's okay, Allison. I think we're all still working on that part. While completing my MA in New Testament studies at a small conservative Christian college, I was typically the only woman in my classes and also typically at the top. Uh, and then she shares a, a really interesting anecdote. During my first semester, I took a course in Greek exegesis that met at night, and during our break, our professor would usually brew a pot of coffee for everyone. When I took my coffee black, the other students joked that I drank coffee, quote, like a man. I laughed along with them, but I've often wondered if, for the sake of Christian female aspiring scholars everywhere, I ought to have responded differently. Uh, 
I'm really glad that Allison shared that anecdote with us. I think that all of us um, who are trying to negotiate Christian feminist identities have been in similar situations and sort of questioned our responses. So thanks for sharing that. Uh, Allison goes on to say that she's listening to the back catalog of episodes and uh, is talking about 2.1 where we discuss uh, the first wave of feminism and iron-jawed angels. Uh, she has a correction to offer us. Um, she says Tennessee Senator Harry Burns uh, did indeed change his vote at the last minute after receiving a telegram for his from his mother. Uh, I think it was me who uh, erroneously said that that was fictional. It's not. Um, and she really interestingly includes the telegram itself, which is so excellent that I must uh, read it here. Dear son, hurrah and vote for suffrage. Don't keep them in doubt. I noticed some of the speeches against. They were bitter. I have been watching to see how you stood, but have not noticed anything yet. Don't forget to be a good boy and help Mrs. Cat, that's Carrie Chapman Cat, put the rat in ratification. Your mother. So thanks, Allison, for writing in and for uh, sharing that correction and the really interesting historical information with us. That's our first listener email. Okay, and I have this second listener email from, I believe it's pronounced Jeff Gailey, and he writes, It's such a pleasure to be typing to you. I've really appreciated your conversations around intersections between faith, gender, politics, and justice this last year. I eagerly wait for your new episodes and always end up talking about them with my wife for days afterwards. The topic, um, mansplaining, had a double ironic layer as I was explaining to her about what I had just learned about something she already knew full well. That certainly prompted a good bit of humility on my part. Um, and then he goes on to say and gives us several topics. He says, anyway, I wanted to speak up and pitch a few topic ideas. I find myself a really attentive learner in the sorts of conversations you're you typically have on the podcast. But there are a few terms that I'm just not familiar with. I'm just going to list the topics and then I'll elaborate on a couple. Um, he asked about what liberation theology is. Could we define that? Uh, the second one is resources for male allies. I'll read that. Given that that's a weird thing to say to a group of feminists, I was really struck by a quote from a podcast last year about how challenging it can be for men to listen intently to the stories of women. How might I be a partner in showing concern for the flourishing of all people everywhere without white knighting all over the place? That's a lovely term, by the way. Um, origins of the patriarchy of the word patriarchy. Um, he just wanted us to talk a little bit more about how that got defined culturally, that sort of thing. Uh, wisdom as female in Proverbs. Excellent topic. <laughs> um, and it says, given that Proverbs has some challenging portions on gender politics, as well as some beautiful poetry honoring women that often gets used abusively as women try to have it all. There are also some wonderful pieces that seem to indicate a feminine aspect to the wisdom of God that I imagine might be, a useful conversation starter. Um, and then he has a few more. I'll just list those. I won't uh, read those out completely. Inspired female authorship of parts of the Bible, different translations of the Bible in English and how it's used in a gendered political way. Um, and it, he's the last one he talks about is the rape of uh, Dinah. And I think the middle one is uh, what are parts of the conversation about female apostles, deacons, elders, teachers in the early church? Thanks for sharing that. Um, we have one more email from um, a, a final listener who was enjoying 
the latest podcast, Cheryl Sandberg Lean In podcast that we just did. She says, I really enjoy your show. As a black Christian feminist, I was so glad to see you all include Bell Hook's perspective in the episode about Cheryl Sandberg's Lean In. One of you mentioned not being sure of why Bell Hooks uses all lowercase letters and her name. Just wanted to share the reason with you. And then she quotes from um, a website that we can link to. She says, Bell Hooks was born Gloria Watkins. She took her pen name from her maternal great-grandmother as a way to honor her women ancestors. She chose to use lowercase letters to get away from the ego associated with names. So I thought that was interesting. I looked up um, really quickly because I've used Bell Hooks in some of my own scholarship, but didn't. Um, ever look at her biography, which I'm somewhat embarrassed about now. Um, but it turns out she's from Kentucky, so I had to throw that out there. Um, in her biography, she's a distinguished professor in residence in Appalachian Studies at Ber- And her biography on that webpage says that um, the names are based on her mother and grandmother to emphasize the importance of the substance of her writing as opposed to who she is. So same words or same thing, just different words. But I thought that was was kind of neat. So thank you for providing that extra bit of information for us. Um, today we're going to discuss Barbara Brown Taylor's newest book, Learning to Walk in the Dark, which was published earlier this year. As always, we're going to start with our knowing section and talk a little bit about Barbara Brown Taylor herself and the book's overall focus. First, a little background on Barbara Brown Taylor. She was trained at Emory University, where she earned a BA in English, and then at Yale Divinity School, where she earned her MDiv. She has a collection of honorary doctorates of divinity from schools all around the country. In 1984, she was ordained as an Episcopalian priest and served a number of churches before foregoing local church ministry, which she wrote about in her highly acclaimed memoir, Leaving Church. Taylor is most famous for her preaching and her writing. While Leaving Church is one of her more controversial texts, her 11 other books, uh, 12 other books now, including Learning to Walk in the Dark, um, her other books have received acclaim as well. Most of her work is theological, as you can imagine, and includes collections of sermons as well as spiritual memoir. In 1996, Baylor University named her one of the 12 most effective preachers in the English-speaking world. Um, And interestingly, I thought she was the only woman on the list. And then a little bit later in 2010, a poll conducted by Lifeway Research lists her among nine other influential preachers, so 10 total. Um, And these were selected by Protestant preachers, I'm presuming American preachers. The the one place I found this listed didn't describe its methodology very clearly, so I'm not sure. But um, anyway, was selected. And again, she was the only woman of the the group of 10 people. Taylor has taught at the Candler School of Theology, the Episcopal Seminary of the Southwest, McCormick Seminary, the College of Preachers in Washington, D.C., and is currently the Butman Professor of Religion at Piedmont College in DeMorris, Georgia. This year, notably, she made Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. She was included on the lists of artists. Um, alongside some interesting characters, I think Miley Cyrus was on the list and Matthew McConaughey, but, um, she was cited for bringing doubt and darkness to the foreground of Christian thought with the publication of this book this year. That's a a little summary of BBT. Lisa, would you give us a brief summary of the, the book, Learning to Walk in the Dark? Sure. Um, Learning to Walk in the Dark, um, basically discusses the fact that most of our churches operate on a sort of solar, you know, light all the time 
um, attitude. And the verse that she gives for that is, um, she gives a couple of verses really early on, even in the introduction. Um, I will give you the treasures of darkness and riches hidden in secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who will call you by your name. She talks about how we need to embrace the darkness time, the dark times of life, as well as this whole idea of darkness. And I was really impressed right away with with her because she talks about the racial connotations in dark and light and how um, that actually comes into the Christian theology as well. Because darkness represents evil and all that is bad and light represents all that is good and all that is God. And she talks about how that just doesn't work for the the real person. Um, if people are being completely honest with themselves, that doesn't work. And um, she talks about how we all have these dark nights of the soul. And she elaborates on that a little bit more and how that looks differently different for different people. Um, for instance, she talks about how she she has not been called to walk through a dark time where um, she's starving to death, but maybe someone else is. And so she talks a little bit about how that doesn't really work either, those kind of terms. Um, but at a theological level, she talks about how we need to embrace the darkness that comes into our lives instead of having a full solar spirituality that only focuses on the light of God. And um, she she develops that further, which I will talk about later when she talks about dark emotions and things like that. And she's very clear throughout the book that if you are going through a dark, what people might call a dark time in your life or dealing with some of those dark emotions, you know, you're going through something like your marriage is breaking up or maybe you're having financial difficulties. People who live in that, you know, lights on all the time church aren't going to hear you. They might hear you the first time, but then they're just going to give you platitudes like, oh, God will never give you more than you can bear. So you just need to get through it. And she takes a very different approach in this book. She says it requires faith to explore the dark times in our lives. And I thought, I think that's really the main message of the book is that she wants us to walk into that darkness and not fear it but embrace it and quit trying to beat it back with medication and platitudes and all these other things and just go into it and say, this is where I'm at. This is where my life is at right now. I don't want to define it as light or dark. This is just me trying to live my life um, and try trying to bring myself closer to God, even in the midst of what I'm going through. Thanks for that overview. I, I totally agree. And um, I will, elaborate a little bit here as I talk about the introduction in a second, but you touched on all the points that I wanted to touch on. And, um, I think really, really summed that up. Well, uh, I just wanted to make a disclaimer and I'm sure you will talk about this more when we get to your section about the medications. We, um, she does talk a little bit about like sleep medication and she has her own disclaimers throughout the book about, you know, she's not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And, um, she talked less about depression in the book than I thought she might, but she, this is not any kind of medical treatment. Um, and it, it, she never talks about the idea that people don't need medication in any way, shape or form, especially when dealing with mental illness or whatnot. And I know that's not what you meant. I just wanted to throw that out there. So, Oh no, I agree with you, but I, I was actually going to talk about that a little bit because there are a couple of times where she does kind of say like, we're trying to beat back the darkness with all these like different things. And yeah. sometimes that takes the form of different crutches. And I think she sort of loosely and offhandedly mentions 
medicating your way through a dark time instead of dealing with it. I, I, I remember reading that in my chapter, but it, it wasn't like she was telling people not to take their meds. So no, she wasn't right. saying that. She wasn't telling anybody to say that, but she did mention it. She did mention it though. Oh, that's good. I remember her talking about that too. So I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. Um, so I wanted to, I thought it would be helpful to talk a little bit about Taylor's introduction here. And Lisa's already, like I said, touched on a few of these points and just add a little bit to what she set up for us. The intro is called Treasures of Darkness, taken from Isaiah 45, verse 3, as Lisa read for us. And she set some terms here that are intriguing and important to the rest of the text that I just want to flesh out a little bit. Um, as Lisa was saying, I think she sums, I think Taylor sums up her basic premise on page five. She says, I've learned things in the dark that I could never have learned in the light. There is really only one logical conclusion. I need darkness as much as I need light. And um, I just thought that was a great quote to stand alone there. Um, so one of the things she gets into is these, this idea of the binary of, of opposing pairs. And I, I thought this was good. And Lisa was alluding to it earlier too. She said that Taylor says that as Christians, we have a tendency to describe our world in binary terms. Um, opposing pairs, like I said, the, you know, proverbial two sides to, to the coin. And she specifically talks about good an evil, church, world, spirit, flesh, and in uh, light, dark, obviously, in this book. And she notes that learning to walk in the dark kind of adds to two of her other popular books, Leaving Church, and then the other was called An Altar in the World. And she says that those three together are, quote, dedicated to scooping up the bottom halves of things, end quote. Uh, you could probably see one of the, each pair tends to be privileged, especially in Christian circles and thought, good, better than evil, um, church, better than world. We're supposed to be in the world, not of the world, um, spirit better than flesh and presumably light better than dark. Um, she said this book is at least, uh, a, a attempt to get into the words and break apart these words used to describe, um, the, the binaries. So she says her first book, Leaving Church, um, dealt with the world. And then um, she dealt with flesh was, like I said, scooping up the bottom halves of things. So scooping up the world, scooping up the flesh, and now scooping up the dark. And she says, not only because those words have been libeled long enough, but also because there is so much life in them that has been rejected on bogus grounds. If there's any truth to the teaching that spiritual reality is divided into halves, it is the truth those pairs exist in balance, not opposition. What can light possibly mean without dark? Who knows spirit without also knowing flesh? And she concludes, people of faith who are committed to fullness of life have our work cut out for us, if only in changing the way we talk. Um, so I'm going to stop there since Lisa already talked about this a lot, and I wanted to get y'all's opinions or thoughts about this. Um, I thought it was a really important message, um, to, to speak to explicitly before going on her somewhat autobiographical talk, rambling anecdote, whatever about through the rest of the book. Um, but what struck you guys from this discussion that she's having about binaries and the importance of language? Um, if I can jump in here, I, the first thing I thought when she was breaking down 
um, the binaries is what, um, like, what a feminist exploration this is. What, um, that at its core, this idea of um, not just breaking down the binaries, but in thinking about why the privileged term is privilege and why the marginalized term is marginalized, um, that exercise is, is kind of central to um, the feminist exercise in terms of questioning why feminized language is typically um, thought to be degraded in the public sphere. Like, I, I see a lot of overlap there. Uh, so I, I appreciated that um, linguistic exploration. And in terms of um, what she's arguing about light and dark, I was really specifically struck by the passages in the introduction where she was talking about um, artificial light and how we, because we do value light more than dark um, in our lives, we inject these forms of artificial light into our everyday experiences so that we don't have to deal with the darkness. And and at first she talks about literal artificial light, um, light bulbs and, and night lights and, and these sort of injections of brightness so that we don't have to deal with the dark. But eventually these artificial light sources start to get more metaphorical. Um, things like television and alcohol and, and things that sort of numb us from nuanced experiences of light and dark. And so after I read that, I've been uh, been thinking about um, both real and metaphorical artificial light sources in my own everyday life. Uh, so I, I've been trying not to, you know, to uh, go to the bathroom without turning on the nightlight and things like that um, as a way of, of being more cognizant of, of these things. So that's, uh, that's what stuck with me. Thanks. I, that, that's a lot of what I was thinking too. This, um, I know for you and your scholarship, the feminist part has been really strong. I, my scholarship background is quote post-colonial. Um, and so similar breaking down of binaries is so important to that work because as always, when you have pairs as opposed to spectrums, there's, there's a part of that pair that, um, that is inevitably privileged and a lot of post-colonial literature is in, in really rooting out the, the issue with the, with the pairs and, um, you know, what can be done to, to make those conversations better and more real because very few of us exist in that sort of black and white vision of the world, again, to use a binary. Um, so thank you for sharing that. And I, the other term I wanted to just point out again that Lisa has already talked about, so I don't, I'm not going to say as much about it full solar spirituality. Taylor coins this term as the tendency to avoid the frightening hitherto dark side of life. Um, because it, and, you know, even trying to deny that those things exist. And I use dark in quotation marks, of course. Um, and that, uh, as, as Christians, like Lisa was pointing out, this can be particularly problematic when people go through difficult times in their lives and they're surrounded by these platitudes that aren't actually helpful when you're the person going through the, the hard patches. Um, and Taylor takes whole congregations, um, to task very, uh, I think nicely, but still she takes them to task for, um, for doing this, for emphasizing the benefits of faith, um, which include a sure sense of, these are her words, sure sense of God's presence, presence, 
certainty of belief, divine guidance in all things, reliable answers to prayer. Um, and my brain immediately went to, oh, Joel Austin and what, what's his brand of theology called? Prosperity gospel. Yes. Thank I, you. I don't think he, I don't think he calls it that, but I, it's no. kind of a, a negatively flavored label that has been applied to him as far as I know. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't listen to him, so maybe I shouldn't get into too much of that here, but, but the sort of idea that if you just believe the right things, everything's going to be sunshine and rainbows, which most of us can attest to as, um, an inaccurate presentation of the gospel. That's not really the point at all. Um, and so Taylor is really grappling with this term as because, you know, what happens then when you're in those, in those rough places or those quote dark spots and, um, points out and spends the rest of the book talking about the fact that this isn't an indication that your faith is not strong. You know, it's merely a time and a way to look at your faith in a very new way. Like Victoria was saying, um, you know, to, to not turn on the nightlight, so to speak, and to um, take a chance and step out past that boundary that we're all comfortable with and moving out into the, into the night metaphorically um, to tackle other things. So for me, the overall, the overarching question for the book is what's the purpose of darkness in our spiritual lives? Um, and how can we use, use it metaphorically or otherwise, um, to enrich our experience on earth as opposed to, um, you know, frighten our experience. So that's kind of how I was reading the book, setting things up for us. Victoria, would you talk with us? I I think you were talking about chapter two and tell us a little bit about why and how darkness is tied to spirituality and fear of the Lord specifically. Yeah. Um, as you said, chapter two is called fear of the Lord. And, um, she does this in, in chapters before this as well, but chapter two is pretty heavy on, um, Taylor's own personal narrative. She talks about how faith, um, came into her life and, and her really early experiences of, of Christianity and what it means to be a Christian. And those really early experiences are all pretty heavily connected to sadness. Um, her father's childhood experiences of spirituality and religion, uh, pretty much solely consist of mean nuns at Catholic school, um, as he recounts them. And her mother, um, talks about her own father, Taylor's grandfather's baptism, um, being a response to the untimely death of her brother. Uh, Taylor herself kind of absorbs these parental recollections of spirituality, but doesn't really attend church herself until she's a teenager. Um, She ends up at a youth group at the behest of her best friend, Carol. Um, But Taylor herself suggests the sort of real reason uh, or or stronger reason that she's at the youth group is because uh, Carol has a brother, Jack, who is very, very handsome. And uh, and Taylor wants to hang out with Jack, uh, which I I think a, a lot of teenagers end up at youth groups for similar reasons. Um, and at this youth group, she's introduced to this preacher who says, uh, yes, there is darkness and the darkness lives within you and, um, this darkness is sending you to hell. So you need to repent. And she is, uh, quote, scared straight by these messages. 
Uh, and, and then later in the chapter, she talks about how as she ages, she progresses towards a slightly more nuanced view of the darkness that does live inside us and its purpose. Um, yeah, so she, she goes away from this kind of what, what my southern grandmother uh, used to call fire insurance Christianity, uh, I believe, so I'm not going to hell, um, and, and goes towards a kind of deeper, less binary view of darkness. And one of the ways she discusses that level of nuance is by talking about um, biblical events that happen at night or in the darkness the most important one in this chapter is Moses talking to God on Mount Sinai. Um, she talks about God being obscured from the people and says, quote, While this darkness is dangerous, it is as sure a sign of God's presence as brightness is. Um, and she says, Real fear of the Lord is fear of God's pure being, so far beyond human imagining that trying to look into it would be like trying to look into the sun. So that simile is really interesting because um, darkness becomes light and light becomes darkness. If the brightness of God is blinding and leads you back into a darkness that is actually about deeper understanding. Uh, so I, I found that um, that biblical explanation really interesting because it does seem to do what the introduction sets out to do, that is, invert and confuse these kinds of binary, easy paradigms. Thanks. I thought that was a really interesting section, too. I'm glad that you brought that up, the idea of brightness is blinding. And um, I'm, I'm curious if you thought that any other parts of the book were similarly confused, do that sort of similar obfuscation or um, confusion? Um, I'm not sure. I That one was the one that stuck out to me most um, and, and that I really liked because I I think that it it kind of changes the way I always looked at the Mount Sinai story in that it gives the people a little bit more agency. Um, it's, it's not just about like, um, be in awe of your lack of understanding, but it kind of gives a deeper dimension to it. Um, I, I can't off the top of my head think of other, um, parts of the book that do the same thing, but maybe Lisa can help me out. Okay. Well, I have been asked to talk about chapter four, the dark emotions. And initially, um, she talks a little bit about in the introduction, which I think um, Sheila talked about, she was saying how uh, darkness equals anything that she's afraid of. Um, and that really stood out to me. But then when she gets to chapter four, she somewhat unpacks that a little bit more. I was actually hoping she'd unpack and define the term dark emotions a little more clearly, but that's the teeter in me. Um, but I think it's vague for a reason and I'll, exp I'll explain that. Um, she begins the chapter just by talking about, um, just our beds and how, when we go to bed at night, you know, um, if you look over at your bedside table, you have all the things to help you sleep. And if you wake up in the middle of the night, like I wake up sometimes cause I'm thirsty. So I always have water with me. So I was thinking about that when I was reading this part. Oh yeah, I have water right here. So I can go right back to sleep. And she just, she talks about how in the Bible, when a person took to their bed, um, 
in like Song of Solomon, it's all about, you know, lovemaking. And then other times it's about when you're in your bed, um, you're being, you're wrestling with God, you're, you're unconscious is at work and the Holy Spirit is moving within you, that sort of thing. Um, and then she sort of mixes that with her, her own personal stories with some dark emotions at night. Um, and she talks about how the dark angel, um, which she, I from what I gathered, and I could be incorrect here, refers to just her feelings of fear, anxiety, worry, those kind of things that she refers to as the dark emotions. Um, you know, fears, anxieties, worries, things that wake you up at night, to me, is the easiest way to define what she meant by dark emotions. Um, and she makes the point in this chapter that instead of waking up in the middle of the night with these dark emotions and running from them and trying to evade them, we should be um, embracing them and walking through them to see what God is trying to do in us and through us with these darker emotions. And she talks about how during the daytime in the light, um, we're servants of, I think she says the necessity. I don't want to misquote her. I think she says she's a servant of um, the necessity or the now, and she has to get things done. Oh, servant of the urgent. Sorry. Uh, servant of the urgent. Nothing is important except for what needs to be done right now. And I think just as a wife and a mother and all of that and trying to do things, you know, like right and things like that, I sort of get that. Um, and this checks about how in the middle of the night, we don't have as much to do. And so that's often when the dark angel or the dark emotions come in and we're actually more captive to that and more able to listen to that and hear it because we're not so distracted by being servants of the urgent, getting all the things done that need to get done. Um, and so she talks a lot about how we shouldn't run from that. We should walk through it again to see what, um, you know, what God has to teach us. And I thought that was really interesting. I was kind of hoping she would define dark emotion a little bit more clearly. Um, I mean, obviously she was talking about depression. I mean, I kept getting that from the book that she was talking about walking through depression, severe depression. And, and I was hoping there'd be a little bit more on that. But overall, I thought she made a really good point that when we don't have all the distractions of life and, you know, I'm going to turn 38 this year, there's a lot more distractions than even when I was a teenager. You know, you can, there were no cell phones when I was a teenager. I mean, I think the dark emotions had a more captive audience when we weren't so distracted all the time. And we're pretty good at being distracted nowadays. So I think she's, she makes a really good point uh, about how those things come to us at night. And that's when we need to, interact with what God is trying to tell us through those dark emotions. Um, what did you ladies think? I guess I was hoping she talked just a little bit more specifically about um, depression in general, but I mean, I was impressed with what she had to say. Yeah, Lisa, I, I agree. I was hoping for more of that. And honestly, I was expecting more um, from that chapter about depression. I mean, even if we're not talking clinical depression, I feel like most people you know, experience the, the funk, right? Like those, those times where you're, you're just not able to redirect your thinking from, um, you know, these, these dark places and, and these, uh, you know, you can't bring yourself out of things as easily as you want to, you know, you know, that you're, um, feeling things and, and thinking about things in a negative way and you just can't reverse those ideas. And, I was surprised at how little that gets into. And, and even though she talks about kind of living in those emotions a little bit more or embracing them, 
I didn't want to how to do that. I mean, I appreciate the um, suggestion that you we should spend some time with those emotions to deal with them, but I wanted to know more about how she does that. Really, you know how how do you negotiate those things that you don't? Want I kind to? of felt the same way. I felt the same way. Um, I I really did feel the same way, almost exactly. Um, I am a person, and I'm very open and honest about this. I just want to say that. I take anti-anxiety medication every single day, and if I have panic attacks, which from time to time I do, it's not an all-the-time thing anymore, praise God, but it used to be, and, um, you know, I have something a little extra for that in case I do need it, but, I mean, I understand what it means to be depressed, to have fears and anxieties that will not quiet, that will not stop. No matter what I did, it nothing was working. And she does, I think, give a voice to that and that mindset. And that definitely should be applauded. But she didn't really talk about what you could do to live through that, embrace it, and walk through that. She just said that you should. And I was like, well, I know that. Um, but that is a very difficult thing to do. And maybe that's the topic of her next book is what that, that looked like for her. You know what I mean? Like her day to day. Cause I mean, as a person who is busy with children, you do have to get up and do things. And sometimes you are just putting a smile on because that's what you need to do, but that doesn't change the way that you're feeling all the time. So I guess I was, you know, again, the teacher in me likes a little bit more, uh, you know, this is, a, these are things you can do to help you embrace those emotions. I was looking for that. Um, and I, I think we all can agree she was talking about depression in its many forms, even though I don't think she used that word. That's all I kept kind of getting from it. But again, I think she should be applauded for just acknowledging that normal people, and I'm going to use that word because a lot of times you get labeled abnormal by Christians because you can't get out of the funk or whatever it is that you're in. You know, you can't get out even though you're praying and you're doing everything everybody's telling you to do and you still can't get there. Um, you definitely start to feel guilty. I know I've experienced that. Um, so I loved it that she just gave a voice to that and is saying, you know what, this is all cyclical. You know, there's a reason the sun goes down at night and, you know, the moon comes out. And, you know, this is how it works with you as well as a person. This is how your soul works. And I thought that was really good. Uh, I, I agree. I I also wanted um, a bit more practicality, a, a bit more kind of when the rubber meets the road, this is what you do, um, information than she has, especially since, um, Lisa touched on this a bit. I feel like as Christian women, we're subject to so much pressure to not kind of fall into these periods of depression, to, to have it all together and to, um, to always be praising God in all matters, which of course we, we should do. But I, I think that sometimes that level of pressure doesn't respond to the humanity present in real people. Um, so I, I did appreciate that she talked a little bit about those pressures and about kind of leaning into the darkness in a productive way. But as you guys said, I, I did want to know a little bit more about how she does that specifically. And maybe, and this is where I think, you know, interestingly, she's different from Sarah Bessie. So I was on the Sarah Bessie Jesus Feminist podcast too, a little while back, who we had some discussion about, um, similar discussion, you know, how much meat is there really in, in these books and how much can we walk away with? Um, you know, interesting idea. Thanks for sharing. But what are we supposed to take away? Um, 
and I, I wonder because Sarah Bessie is on a blog and so you have these, you have this space there to converse, to comment, to reply to comments, to have a bit more of a conversation than you do in this more traditional, um, here's the hardcover and your Kindle edition and, you know, share it with your book club format. Um, I was wondering if, you know, Barbara Brown Taylor is leaving it up for discussion for everyone to have these conversations amongst ourselves, um, rather than trying to be prescriptive and say, well, I do it this way. It should work for everybody. Um, whether that was intentional or like Lisa was saying, whether you think there's a sequel coming, I don't know what you all thought about that. Well, I was thinking maybe she did leave it vague because, um, this sort of segues into the next chapter I'm supposed to talk about. I think she was, I think she was making a very concentrated effort, very careful effort. I'm going to move into my next chapter now, The Dark Night of the Soul, which I believe is chapter seven, where she talks about how, um, I'll just read it, like darkness itself, the dark night of the soul means different things to different people. And she talks about how for some people that could be like a great loss in their life, like a death. And for other people, it's just making a really difficult decision. Or, you know, for some people, the dark night of the soul is a job change or just not knowing what's going on with their life, that sort of thing. But she does say a dark night of the soul is a time when you're severely tested, often to the point of losing faith by circumstances beyond all control. Um, And she says, no one chooses the dark night, the dark night descends. And I thought that was very well put, very well defined. And I think maybe she isn't giving us kind of those detailed, you know, step-by-step type of things because she wants to honor the fact that this looks different for different people. And that could very well be, although she also is an author and as a budding author, I understand the need to write another book. So I don't know if maybe that's coming or maybe that's something that she speaks about, you know, when, you know, this is sort of the starter And like maybe you said, Sheila, maybe she just wants us to be having this conversation. Maybe that's where she feels we're at right now. Maybe we're not ready for solid food. Maybe we need to just start here. And she feels like the church, Big C, needs to start by just talking about it. And then we'll get to a place where we're able to um, walk together in the darkness. I guess maybe, maybe that could be. That's a really cool point, Lisa. I, I like what you said about um, m- maybe we're not ready for solid food. Maybe we don't, um, maybe we say that we want sort of practical tips for dealing with the darkness, but maybe we just need to, to, to chew on these philosophies and ideas for a while. That's that's really interesting. I will be thinking about that. Yeah, well, I, I think, I, sorry, go ahead, Sheila. No, 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 it's fine. I think she is... I think she is taking the church to task on something they need to be taken to task on myself included in that, to be honest. I mean, there, when I was doing mentoring at crown college there, I think one of the reasons I had so many people who wanted to mentor with me was because I didn't tell them what they were feeling was wrong or unchristian. I never said that because what they're feeling is what they're feeling. I mean, I don't know how many young women and a few young men would come and talk to me here and there, but uh, mostly young women would come to me. And of course they're young. So they're at that stage of faith where they're questioning all, all kinds of things, which she also talks about in this book, that idea of doubt, um, you know, doubt in your faith, doubt in what you believe, doubt that God is there, all that stuff, um, which by the way, is a really healthy process in the faith development, but that's for another day. Um, I never, ever said, you know, 
oh my gosh, you shouldn't be feeling that. You know, you need to go run back into the light of church and everything's going to be just fine. And I, I don't know how many people came to me, just tears streaming down their face saying, I've done everything, my family, my church, my, you know, everything I'm being told to do, but I don't feel better. What's wrong with me? And what I love about her, what she's doing is she's saying, you know what, there's nothing wrong with you personally. You're going through something. And unfortunately, the church isn't helping you go through that. So let's start with this conversation. And honestly, everyone always thought I was like this great mentor. All I did most of the time was listen, like, and just let them unload all these dark emotions they were feeling and never, ever, ever saying this was my rule. You're not allowed to feel that. And I hope I never told anybody everything is going to get better tomorrow because it wasn't. I'll never forget this. I'll just share one little story. A girl came to me and she said, I'm not having a burning bush healing moment. Why not? She's like, I just got done hearing a service about how if I pray about my depression, God will take it away. And I was like, okay. Let's talk a little bit more, you know, and so we kind of unpacked it a little bit and she was very upset. I mean, she was very upset. Um, she was just so let down by herself and her own faith in God that she almost felt like she couldn't go on just because, I mean, not to that, not suicidal, but just go on in the faith because she wasn't worthy of the faith because God wasn't giving her this big healing, you know, stroke moment where all this depression was wiped away from her. And one of the, I wish I had actually read this book at the time. I remember saying, well, it doesn't always work that way. You know, I mean, yes, there are people who get, who I'm never going to deny someone isn't healed. That's not fair. But I think when we unpack some of the things we hear in church, we'll hear that there's a little bit longer to the story that yes, God does offer healing and it can be in that one big moment, that burning bush moment, as she put it. But I think um, this book addresses the issue of maybe it's more of a walking journey instead of a sprint. And I did like that. And, and I, again, I think she is taking the church to task for not giving people like this young woman that came to me a place where they can walk. So maybe, like I said, maybe it does have to start with the conversation just because there is no place right now. What do you guys think? I think some churches probably do this better than others, of course, but. No, I think, I think you hit on something really good. And again, I don't know if this is like one of those feminine ways of knowing, um, but the more we talk about this and the more we think I'm thinking it through, um, so to take it back to the book, so much of this text is really Taylor sharing her stories with us, right? Stories about going out into the darkness with no lights and she lives on a farm and pretty rural section of Georgia and, um, listening to the animals and watching the moon rise and, and doing all this without the aid of additional light. And, um, it is meandering a slow pace journey. So you don't, you know, stub your toe on more rocks while you're doing this so that you don't fall more than you have to, but that it's purposeful and it's, um, it's hopeful, right? Like everything she does in the text is, there's this element of hope that when she goes down into the cave, she'll experience something. She doesn't know what. There's no, like, I'm going from point A to B to do, to accomplish these things, which um, I think can can sometimes be a very, like, male-gendered way of thinking in our lives is, well, I have to, to, to do these things in this order to get this end result. 
And if you don't do it correctly, well, that's on you. That's your fault. And that's um, maybe, okay, so I'm going to backtrack now and take back that male gendered way of thinking because that's not fair. But, um, but, but that like we, we have prescriptions for so many things, you know, you need to do X, Y, Z to make your life better. And if you don't follow them, you have then the additional guilt of not doing them correctly or, you know, this like self deprecating, um, process where you think, man, I, I really messed this up and it, it gets worse rather than getting better and Taylor and maybe not giving us these set rules is demonstrating that process of taking the journey and realizing that it's small steps at a time when you can't see the path lit well ahead of you, right? Like you just take what steps you can, the next one that you see and the next one that you see, and that's a valid process. <laughs> Yeah, I I think that that's that kind of slowness is really interesting, um, particularly when thinking in a, a broader like historical spiritual context. Um, I, I've been thinking about sort of why the central ideas of this book appeal to me, and I think it's because um, c- couldn't we think of this as a, a kind of Protestant mysticism? Like I I feel like um, I. I, uh, apologies to, to any Catholic listeners that we have, um, I, I don't think that Catholicism, uh, is for me for a variety of reasons, but something that I've always, um, admired about the Catholic Church historically is, um, the room that it makes for women, particularly within the Catholic mystic tradition, that, um, that there's this space inhabited, um, that makes room for um, the the kinds of things Sheila you were just alluding to um, more feminine gendered um, modes of thought and interpretation so is that is that sort of what Taylor is doing is is this a kind of Protestant flavored mysticism maybe it's so interesting you mentioned that because when I was researching for this um, podcast today, so many bloggers talk about her as a mystic. So I'm just so glad you brought that up. And they they actually call her a mystic in their little comments, you know what I mean, about this book and some of her other books. So I'm, I'd be very curious how she sees herself. Does she consider herself uh, sort of the face of like feminine Christian, like you were saying, that, that, that mysticism that honestly, I totally agree with you having gone to Catholic school for several years, Victoria, that is something we are just missing in the Protestant uh, church. Um, and when I took a, this wonderful course on feminist theology at Luther, um, is one of the things we talked about how um, so many women are drawn to this kind of teaching and this kind of writing because there's something that we're just not getting um, in our in our church communities that is a need inside many of us. And I thought, I think that's really interesting to bring up. Um, I'd be curious what Sheila thinks. And I'm, I would really be curious to know what the author thinks of several, and I mean several bloggers calling her a Christian mystic. I'm, I'm very curious. Well, I have to, so I have to ask the question, what defines a mystic as opposed well, to that, any other sort of theology? Oh, really good question. <laughs> that's a really good question. Um, Victoria, you're you're usually right there with definitions. Do you want to take that? Um, I hmm, 
I mean, I'm I, I like you on the spot. <laughs> no, that's okay. It's really hard to define. That's why I'm trying to. Yeah, this is is something I've been reading about. Um, over the past year or so, I've been reading some uh, female medieval mystics. Um, I've read a lot of um, Julian of Norwich and a lot of. Uh, I, I teach Marjorie Kemp in my British lit classes. She sometimes gets classes a mystic too, though um, Julian is probably closer. I I don't know that I can give. I mean, I mean, I'm sure concrete definitions exist, but for me, it's it's sort of, um, uh, sort of like the definition you always hear of pornography, right? Like it's hard to define, but I know it when I see it. Um, I was actually going to say something very similar, and I have a degree <laughs> from a seminary because it's really hard to define. I mean, um, I, I think that something that's important is um, is value, valuing the kind of unseen and the unquantifiable. So I, I feel like it's hard to nail down a, a kind of empirical definition of mysticism because it's so much about the undefinable itself, if that makes sense and is not a total cop-out. No, it's well, not at all. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Sheila. No, I was just going to say that seems to be actually very helpful, and I can see how people then would align Taylor with that um, that sort of thought. I mean, it so much of, of this book is about dealing with that, about, and maybe that's the, the part of the journey that needs to be approved, you know, go go and do this, um, because so much of, of this book is about trying to explore those places that we've we leave unexplored and that we intentionally shy away from because I think a lot of us carry that fear. Like if I, if I spend too much of my thought on these things, which everyone tells me are negative, how is that going to leave me at the end of the day? And I think our immediate inclination is to think negative thoughts equal, you know, thinking about negative things is going to lead to more negative thoughts, um, which is, seems kind of, wrong when you view it in the light of this text, when you view it in, you know, in the light of other similar texts, you know, you look at lamentations and you look at other scriptures, you've, you've got to, you've got to deal with the hard things as well as the happy things. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll put this as another link. There's a really good book on like feminist Christian mysticism that intermixes, um, mythological stories with um, this idea of what it means to be like a feminine mystic um, by, I, I think it's Jenny or Janine, I can't remember how she pronounces it, Knight. Um, and I'll have a link to it at the end, Victoria. But when I read this, I got a better idea of what we're talking about. And one of the things that she talks about in there is this whole idea of um, just experience and honoring, like Victoria was saying, sort of the things that can't be defined, but you know, she talks about how when some women, not all, of course, I don't want to make everyone bumped in the same category, they experience emotional and spiritual things in a similar way. And so she feels like feminist, you know, Christian mysticism has to do with honoring this idea of uh, emotions being involved in the faith instead of it being so very, you know, oh my gosh, emotions. Because often in Christian circles, emotions do get lumped as um, bad or negative or dark <laughs> to go back to the book. Um, and she wants to embrace all of the emotions and, and connect them more to our spirituality. So that's what I took as, as mystic, especially feminist theological mysticism was just this honoring of how the Holy spirit moves within women specifically, but also just, um, 
how spiritualism and emotions are connected. I guess that's the best definition I could give either. So hopefully that's not too much of a cop out either. Oh, I think that's good. I um, was trying to find in my notes, there was a section that I wanted to talk about um, as part of the lightning round later, but um, she, in the chapter working with darkness talks about in the, you know, before electricity, people would spend a lot of their time in the dark. I think the book says 14 or so hours, um, up to 14 hours in the dark. And these researchers with the National Institute of Mental Health were um, trying to replicate that pattern in a study. And as they were doing it, those people who were, who were replicating that pattern of 14 hours in the dark, she says they began to discover states of consciousness they'd never experienced before. Does that tie in with this idea of mysticism and that, you know, you're, you're kind of living outside of the self while you're doing this? Sounds like it to me. I mean, that's such an interesting experiment. I, I, part of me thinks it would be cool to do that. And part of me thinks it sounds a little scary, um, <laughs> which I, I think that kind of dualism is, uh, is pretty close to encapsulating what mysticism brings to people too, that there's a kind of, um, a kind of freedom in, in stepping outside of yourself and your comforts and what is known if you can kind of give God enough latitude to, to move in those areas. So yes, yeah, that sounds like what I know to be true about mystical experiences. Well, if it's okay with you guys, I think we should probably talk a little bit. We wanted to talk a little bit about um, a Time Magazine article. I mentioned earlier that she was listed as one of the um, 100 influential people, but there was also a lengthier article in Time um, in April, right around the book release, um, that talks about this new book. And um, Victoria, would you mind talking a little bit about the book's reception? Yeah, um... I couldn't really find uh, a wide range of reviews. I Most of the reviews that I found were not of this book, but are of earlier books in terms of coming from like big mainstream Christian sources. Um, so I, I think that maybe her public position um, means people maybe don't have time to cover everything she's doing. Um, so most of the reviews that I found come from progressive sources and mention that she's a polarizing figure. Uh, Jonathan Merritt, who's the head correspondent at Religion News Service, uh, calls her, quote, a heretic to some and a prophet to others. But the reviews themselves seem to be primarily positive and in agreement with her central thesis that says darkness is nuance and, and we should aim for this kind of nuance. Um, we should strive for these modes. Um, I couldn't find any coverage of this most recent book on Christianity Today, for example. Um, the negative reviews that I could find were online and were primarily from individuals like uh, your Amazon reviews, your Goodread, Goodreads reviews. And the common thread within them was basically, uh, to, to paraphrase what a number of reviewers said, um, that this book is all style and no substance, that it replaces theology with personal narrative, and that there's not a lot of depth. Um, a number of negative reviews also say that um, there's some faulty biblical interpretation here. Uh, here's an excerpt um, from one of them. 
Uh, biblical error first. In chapter 2, page 45, the author writes, quote, Joseph dreams such dreams at night that he catches a pharaoh's attention. Uh, that is a false statement. The only time any of Joseph's dreams are mentioned, Genesis 37, 5 through 10, are those he had before being sold into slavery. Obviously, those dreams did not, quote, catch Pharaoh's attention. In Genesis 40, when Joseph does catch the attention of the Pharaoh, it is for interpreting other people's dreams. These are such well-known Bible stories that for a Christian writer, a professor of religion no less, to miss this is shocking, and her credibility as a biblical scholar is arguable at this point. Uh, so I, I thought that was interesting that... Um, that the big kind of news service reviews are mostly positive and the negative reviews are coming from um, individual people. I, what do you guys think about this breakdown? I I was thinking, um, you know, I I think that tends to happen when you're dealing with quote unquote interesting books about religion that look at topics in a, quote, totally new way, um, those, the specifics tend to get glossed over. Um, and, and honestly, like I missed that when reading through it and I'm awfully familiar with the story of Joseph and, um, I, in hearing it again, think I glossed over it because, because I know this story, like it's not as important to me. The wording there isn't as important. The fact that it, we're dealing with dreams um, is what's important, whether they're Joseph's dreams or his interpretation of someone else's dreams. It, to me, seems a little piddling, but I don't know. I'll throw it out for you too. I, I, I think she was doing something a little different with this book and, and playing with a different format. Um, I get what the critics are saying. I mean, she doesn't do a lot of exegesis in the traditional way. Um, and she doesn't, you know, follow, like I said, a clear exegesis of scripture or something like that. And there is a lot more personal narrative, but I wouldn't say that makes it less theological. And just having been in seminaries for so many years now, that is often a comment on writings like this by women. I'm not saying all male theological scholars think that. But they will often throw that out as a comment that, you know, it wasn't pro – it's almost like they're saying it wasn't properly done. Um, but I just want to say I don't think because she used more narrative than, you know, straight-up exegesis that is very, you know, scholarly makes it any less theological. And I think that that's a debate that's ongoing. Um, this is something we talked about at length when I was in seminary. Um, you know, what? why is it wrong to use narrative – personal narrative more and exegesis less, why does that make it less theological? Because people in seminaries say so, because critics say so. And so I think, I think there is a little bit of that there, but I do understand what they're saying. Um, again, I just think she's doing something different. She's doing a different format that, you know, obviously isn't the traditional format of talking theologically about scripture or issues like this. Yeah, so much of this re resonates with me from, keep pointing back to Jesus Feminist, but in a similar way, like Bessie was using a very different style, and I think that was purposeful, very different from what you would think of as typical theology. Um, and and I agree with you. I, I think the the narrative is important, and it hasn't been privileged for a long time, Um in this realm of religion and scholarship. Um, 
And for me, it's not always about writing down the right answer. Like we were talking about before, sometimes my right answer isn't going to be your right answer. It's about a personal journey. And because this, you know, series, this prescription work for me, it doesn't mean it's going to work for you. Um, and so it's not about finding the right answer. It's about finding the personal answer and being given the latitude to go and find your, your own personal answer to these very difficult questions. Because at the end of the day, you can't argue with a person's testimony. And that's all narrative is. It's our, our testimony of experience. I think now would be a good time to do our, our final thoughts lightning round here. Is there anything else that you all wanted to share, a favorite chapter or quote that we didn't get to? Um, I wanted to share a quote from the Time Magazine article um, where she Taylor talks a lot about um, the experiences that she recounts in leaving church and, and how um, stepping down from her post as pastor um, made her start to think about doubt and faith and how they work together. Um, and the sentence that really hit me was, For many years I thought my questions and my doubt and my sense of God's absence were all signs of my lack of faith, but now I know this is the way the life of the Spirit goes. And that was just really beautiful to me, this idea that that maybe doubt is in fact a sign of the presence of faith instead of the sign of the absence of faith and that these negotiations are, are just a part of our faith journey. Um, I, I really enjoyed that and it really resonated with um, conversations I've been having with, with one of the students um, that Michael and I have been mentoring together. Um, she's asking a lot of questions about um, about doubt and, and, and feeling God's absence and how you can sort of understand those as, as the part of your personal uh, journey with Christ. So that, uh, that hit me pretty hard. I really like that. I um, was leaning towards sharing her idea of a lunar spirituality. So her own little binary there was the full solar spirituality and then this lunar one, um, which she says, uh, in which the divine light available to me waxes and wanes with the season. Um, and I, I, I really like that idea for similar reasons. Um, the metaphor there is obviously about, I think, about doubt and wondering. And, you know, when there's a little more lunar light, it's a little easier to see what's coming ahead of you and, and where you've come from. Um, but I also like that metaphor because to me, it seemed pretty distinctly feminine. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. Right? Mo <laughs> moons and cycles and flowing and yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Again, like Sarah Bessie is standing out to me. She, she talks about, you know, if more women preached and taught, we'd hear more of the word of God through metaphors of birth and life. And I was like, yeah, yeah, this is one of those things. Um, but, but that it's also universally acceptable. Like, yes, women experience, most women experience that sort of cyclical nature of life um, on a fairly consistent basis. Um, but it's also a universally acceptable idea. You know, we've all, all people can look up and see the moon and see better or worse for where the moon is in its stages and phases. And even sometimes you have like recently we had uh, one of those moon phases where the moon was super close to the earth. So you get these, right? Is this right? Am I being astro? Economically correct. Um, so the moon looked really, really, really big because it would come up over, you'd get the moon rise and it was right there and there was tons of light. Um, and at some point it'll be really, really far away again. We won't have that. 
shout out to the rest of the podcast network, Book of Nature guys. If we have gotten this sciencey stuff wrong, let us know. <laughs> yes, please <laughs> fix it. <laughs> Lisa, did you have a lightning round piece you wanted to share? Um, I was only just going to briefly talk about. Um, I thought her chapter on the dark night of the soul was a little bit more specific than the dark emotions, and I thought they did actually go really well together. Um, I maybe she, I was kind of hoping she would put them back to back actually because they kind of touch on the same issues. Um, and I guess one of my favorite quotes was um, she was talking early in the book about how um, your parents tell you, no, there aren't monsters under your bed or whatever. And she's like, no, there was, there was a monster <laughs> under my bed and I had to deal with it. I just thought that was very humorous, but also very, very truthful and very telling that, you know what, there was something under the bed and I had to deal with it. Um, I couldn't just pretend it wasn't there. And I thought that was a really nice analogy and certainly something as a parent, we often say, and, um, now that when I'm saying that, I actually think about it a little bit, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, I need to say that. I don't want my kids to be scared, but at the same time, is that what I should be saying? So she really got me thinking just even in my daily life about things that I'm passing on to my own daughters. Like, am I teaching them to live in a lights on world with all lights on spirituality? What, or am I teaching them that just like the sun and the moon and the moon, even the moon goes through cycles of different types of darkness. Like, am I teaching them how to walk through that? Am I giving the emotional tools that they need? Or am I just telling them that to ignore it, it'll go away and turn on a light. And so she really got me thinking about just how I'm parenting even to that next generation. So I thought that was really powerful. That's really funny, Lisa. My two-year-old, my husband and I were just having a conversation about our two-year-old daughter and whether we should get her a nightlight. <laughs> she wakes up screaming sometimes at night and you know, we talked to her about it and she says, it's so dark. And she doesn't say she's scared of the dark, but she just says, it's so dark. And part of me goes, well, let's just get a nightlight and fix it. And then the other part of me goes, no, she has to deal with the darkness as a two-year-old. <laughs> so... Um, okay. So we're getting to our passing on section. Um, Lisa, would you start us off? What recommendations do you have for us this week? Okay. I'm going to give a couple and I've given one of these before, but it's really definitely on topic. Um, I love Henry, uh, Nowen, or I think it's Nowen. Yeah. Henry Nowen. Sometimes you hear new one. I say whatever, as long as you know who you're talking about. Uh, Henry Nowen. Um, he has a book called the wounded healer and it's about suffering. It's about you know, dark emotions and that sort of thing. And he says that what we need to do is learn to embrace the fact that we are wounded and that we need to look at the different types of suffering, a suffering world, a suffering generation, and a suffering person, and even the suffering minister or leader in their church. Um, and the reason I wanted to bring this up is he talks about how everyone has suffered in some way and everyone has wounds that need healing. And just because you have that, just because you have what, you know, the book we talked about today might have some dark emotions. That doesn't mean you can't be a leader within your church. That doesn't mean you can't serve God. In fact, that probably makes you more equipped to serve God than you might believe. And so the book, The Wounded Healer, if you've never read it, it's very powerful. It talks about how human nature is this fundamental walk through woundedness. And I think the book we read for today would say human nature has to do with walking through these dark emotions that do happen in our lives. So I just thought those fit really well together. Um, and he, he actually does a little bit more guidance of how you can embrace these type of emotions and still serve others. And I thought that that was like a good connection. And then, of course, his famous book that I've recommended so many times, I hope somebody out there is reading it, uh, The Inner Voice of Love, A Journey Through Anguish to Freedom. 
And this is when he went through the dark night of his soul um, and he quit um, all of his ministries. Um, he was the top theologian in the country at the time, basically achieved everything every theologian would ever want to achieve. And he looked around and realized that he had nothing. So he just quit. He just left everything. He canceled all his speaking, all his writing, everything. Um, that's how full of that dark night he was. And this book, The Inner Voice of Love, is what he learned from that experience, what he learned from walking through it. Oh, and because I mentioned it, I'll say it. Uh, Feminist Mysticism and Images of God, A Practical Theology by Dr. Janine Knight. Thanks, Victoria. Uh, so I am going to maybe cheat a little bit and say that my recommendation comes from in-house. Uh, I already posted about this on the podcast Facebook page, but I, um, I think it's, it's worth repeating. And I know some of our listeners don't, uh, don't do Facebook. So in case you don't, or even if you do, cause this is awesome. Uh, I'm going to recommend regular CFP panelist, Marie Hawes's new blog. Um, it's called in all things. Um, it's a, a reference to, um, the quote that is our podcast tagline, and she's doing some really interesting investigations into uh, gender and theology and sexuality that really line up with a lot of the things we talk about on our show, and she's also doing a series of posts that um, respond directly to issues raised in previous episodes of our show, so definitely check that out. Um, I have particularly enjoyed an early post called The Other Girls, where she talks about embodiment and identity. Uh, so that's my recommendation for this week. Yeah, that was an awesome, that was a particularly awesome article. I really like that one too. Um, post, I guess. Uh, my re recommendation may be somewhat obvious, but I would strongly, strongly encourage you to go to YouTube and find some video teaching. Um, she is, I think, a good author. Her, her books are interesting and, and um, worth reading and grappling with, but you know, she's been recommended twice now as an effective, influential preacher. And sometimes it's, it's great to just see that in action. There was a link, I think on the um, article that Victoria mentioned earlier, um, on religion news, um, to a video of hers. That's, it's about an hour long. So if you're not sure you're able to, and you might want to just watch her preach and, um, listen to the, the main points. She kind of encapsulates the book in that sermon. I think it was interesting anyway to check out. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast today. We'd love to hear from you if you have a topic or reading recommendation for f future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For show notes from this and other episodes, check out christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison, and Zach Schmidt is our intern. For Lisa Cordles and Victoria Reynolds Farmer, I'm Sheila Woodruff. Tune in in two weeks for our discussion of the intersections of Christianity and sex positivity. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.